Let's pretend that this isn't advice. And I'm Erin, and I'm not giving you advice. It's it's not advice. I can't help myself <laughs> give advice. I don't mean to. I don't want to. I want you to be able to live your life, but I know how to do it. I'm a huge know-it-all, and this is where I practice not giving advice to people. Except I totally give advice to them. I'm a lawyer turned professional certified coach, and I just happen to give the best advice. But this is a podcast, not a coaching session, so I obviously don't do that here, except I do. This is not advice with Erin Conlon, your know-it-all lawyer coach friend. This is not advice. On today's episode of This Is Not Advice, I have former covert CIA intelligence officer and decorated military combat veteran and successful Fortune 10 corporate advisor, Andrew Bustamante. Andrew founded EverydaySpy.com. It's the first ever online platform designed to teach elite spy skills to us normal people, you know, the people that weren't recruited by Langley. It was a really cool conversation and I learned a ton. I learned what we what it's like to be recruited by the CIA and how the first thing the CIA teaches you, which is basically perspective, which you'll learn about in this episode. Um, we talk about his partnership with his wife and how that works, who also runs the business with him. We talk about a little bit of the difference between masculine and feminine energy and how that shows up. Uh I cannot tell you how much I took away from this. It was a really impactful conversation for me. And what I love about how we talked was just the ability to, Andrew's ability to really make what seems inaccessible, accessible. These ideas that are for other people, he actually brings it to everyone. Um, And I just want to offer to anyone listening that there's always a choice to access skills at any given point in time. And the skills that he's offering, the skills that I offer, whatever, you don't have to embody these all of the time. But having access to more skills or having access to more tools or being willing to choose in the moment is how we actually get ourselves unstuck. The difference between being stuck and being unstuck is is choosing outside of the moment. So anyway, I really loved this conversation. um, And I hope that you will love it too. Personally, I currently have one spot open in my practice. And uh, if you want to be the person to take that spot, I would love to hear from you. My, Just reach out, go to my website, erinconlin.com uh, backslash book online, set up a 30 minute discovery call, and we can talk about what it's like to work with me. In the meantime, have an amazing day. Make sure to take care of yourself and uh, Don't let your feelings dictate your day, but also feel them. It's a duality. It's actually more than a duality. It's a multiality, whatever. Have a great day. Take care. Um, Hi, Andrew. (laughs) Hey, Erin. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. It's exciting. I'm I'm excited to be here. And it's uh, I know nobody else gets to see what we're looking at, but that is Mm -hmm. a wild painting sitting behind you. Yeah. It is my friend Suzanne made it. It's actually a succulent, but it's like very Georgia O'Keeffe. Yes. Um, and it, I love what when I sit well, it crowns my head <laughs> like a very rainbow, uh, feminine crown of petals. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I'm, like I'm, I'm surrounded by a giant. Vagina. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. It just it looks like <laughs> this looks like a vagina monologue uh, poster. <laughs> On the back wall, but that's okay. At least, at least the the setting is set, so yeah. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's talk vaginas. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what I expect from a conversation with a former spy. <laughs> <laughs> well, your background is I, they look like some etchings. Some I can't tell if it's like Asian art 
Yeah, it's all the different. Um, my wife and I have always had a thing about picking up local art from anywhere we've lived or traveled. Uh, mm -hmm. And when we say local art, it's not like in the United States where you know you have art galleries. Most of the world, it's literally a a poverty stricken artist who's in the process of actively carving a piece of wood or writing a scroll or anything else. So this scroll over here was actually painted in front of us in real time by a painter in China who was painting with his fingernails. So everything Whoa, up there is awesome. black ink painted by fingernails. Yeah. And then these two pictures that you have kind of up here off to the other side were in Bali. And uh, it was a guy out of a little shack and he was painting with homemade paintbrushes and uh, paints that were made from local, like local resources, pulling it, uh, pulling the dye out of uh, flower petals or out of grass or dirt or whatever it was, clay. So making his own paints and then painting them with his own paintbrushes. Mm -hmm. So those are just two of the many things that we have sitting behind us. But yeah, we've got a thing for bringing that kind of art home with us. That is, that's amazing. Well, I bet your house is super cool. And let's tell our audience, who, like, I would like for you to introduce yourself so that people would know why you might have art from all over the world at your home. Painted by a man's fingernails. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> because we pulled him out, obviously. <laughs> you just went to China and were like, I got to find this guy who paints yeah, with right? his fingernails. That's exactly so, what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah. So my name is, uh, my name is Andrew Bustamante. I am a former covert CIA intelligence officer, and now I run a business called Everyday Spy, where I teach everyday people how to use real-world spy skills to get an unfair advantage in business, in personal security, and in personal relationships. Uh, and the reason I traveled the world was because CIA sent me on missions all over the world. Uh, and it doesn't really matter what alias you have. Uh, it doesn't matter what credit card name or passport you're carrying. When you buy art from a little homeless guy on the street corner, you pay in cash and there's no mm -hmm. receipt or transaction. So we can carry this with us forever, even though we bought it in different names and different passports in different parts of the world. Oh, that's neat. I guess like I wouldn't think, how do you carry your life with you when you're not allowed to record your life? And that's kind of part of it, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's you know, you can record your life anytime you want. Um, it's just about leaving a documentation trail. The, mm -hmm. the trail of data is what makes it easy to get caught. Uh, and that's the truth with anything, right? Even, even uh, parents out there trying for their spouse not to catch them watching porn. It's just a matter of erasing <laughs> the cookies. As long as there's no trail, technically the tree never fell in the woods. So that's, that's what CIA basically taught us to do. Cover, cover your tracks? Yeah. Cover your tracks. Make sure that there's no trail, but you can still take your life with you anywhere you go. Well, Andrew, I'm just so curious. How did you end up in the CIA? Like, were you always interested in these kinds of operations? Like, what drew you to this kind of work? So, yeah, I I was one of those kids growing up who really didn't care what I was going to be when I grew up. I just mm -hmm. wanted to grow up in a hurry. Uh, it was like... <laughs> Being a kid for me was kind of crappy. What's the point? And like everybody else tells you, dad makes you order off the children's menu at Denny's and that's annoying. And nobody lets you stay up to watch shows at night, even though the best shows come on after eight o'clock and that's annoying, you know, all that stuff. And you've always got chores. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm going to be a grown up and have no chores and stay up late and order off the grown ups menu every time. <laughs> So I, that, that just kind of instilled in me this attitude of, you know, what's the next best thing. And when I came out of the military, I was trying to go into the Peace Corps because I thought the Peace Corps would be the next best thing to the military. And I got intercepted by an offer from CIA. Uh, and like any 27 year old single person, I was like, you know, how do you say no to that invitation? Let's, let's go, let's go try it out. What was that invitation? Like as much as you can tell us, what was that invitation like? <laughs> so it was a, this was 2007. So okay. it was a phone call. I got a phone call uh -huh. from a, a number that was unlisted on my flip phone. Cause I had a flip phone in 2007. I, re I remember those. Oh, they, were, <laughs> they were so cute. <laughs> so all it said on it was the zip, the area code 703. And it said, Virginia. I didn't realize what 703 was, but 703 is Langley, Virginia, like Northern Virginia and all the areas surrounding Langley. 
So yeah. I get this phone call from a 703 number. It looks shady. It looks like a fake phone call, but it's a flip phone and spam wasn't as common as it is now. So I answer the call and um, there's a, a dude on the other side who basically confirms my name and confirms that I was recently applying for the Peace Corps. Uh, and it sounds all very official. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that was me. That was me. I'm thinking it's the Peace Corps, right? And then he goes on to say, yeah, you've been identified as somebody who may have uh, may have an opportunity or may have the, the right kind of background to serve in a different national security uh, service or in a different national security um, space. Would you be interested in an interview? And that's it. So it still didn't sound very real. And then he we, we went on for like 15 or 20 more minutes and he told me that he was going to book me a flight. He was going to send me airplane tickets and then they'd take care of a hotel and rental car and everything and that they were going to fly me to Langley, Virginia for an interview in a few weeks. And then the phone call ended. Uh, and for me, I was like, yeah, right. It's like no one's going to spend $800 on an f- airplane That's ticket. So wild. And, yeah, a few hundred dollars, whatever. And this was, like I said, 2007. So I, I was a I was a non-believer until like two and a half days later, three days later, FedEx dropped off a packet with airplane tickets and a reservation for a rental car and a hotel. And again, like any other 27-year-old dumb shit, I was like, let's go. Let's jump on this plane and go to this place and see what's going on <laughs> with no idea what I'm doing <laughs> or who I'm talking to. <laughs> but it's amazing. Like, I love the the willingness of it. You're like, all right, sure. Let's have an adventure. Let's see what happens with this wild ass invitation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So then when you actually get there, you know, in the back of your head, you're like national security, is this going to be like a spy thing? Or is this going to be like a police thing? Or like I said, I'm coming out of the air force. So I didn't know if this was like the air force moving me into special operations, but Mm. you know, it sounds cool. Uh, And Virginia is not an unsafe place. It's not like they asked me to go to you know, what is it? East St. Louis or something that would have been a little bit different, but, but going up to Virginia and spending a, uh, t- a Tuesday and a Wednesday during core business hours, you know, visiting some business center. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go give it a whirl. Right. And it's, I mean, if you looked up on the internet, you could have figured out Langley is where the CIA is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, they weren't taking me to CIA headquarters. That's not where, yeah, that's oh, not okay. where they were. That's not where the invitation was. It was to this you know, shady looking, uh, if you've ever driven past a business center. Oh, I, I, I grew up in suburban Michigan. Yeah. So like those, those four or five story zoned, like (laughs) non-labeled buildings. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just like what business works there? It's like all of those like plastic bag manufacturing companies. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Things like that. It's where travel agents go right before they go bankrupt. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> oh, poor travel agents. <laughs> so, well, at least when they go bankrupt, then their office space gets used as a covert training facility, a covert interview facility. So you got that going for I you. Mean, so you said yes, obviously. How long did you spend with the CIA? I spent seven years with CIA. Uh, it's a, I did say yes. It's a very prolonged yes. It's like multiple rounds of interviews that take place over multiple months, sometimes multiple years. Um, But by the end, yeah, I said, yes, I got brought into what was called the National Clandestine Service, the NCS, which is a, the, or the section, the small segment of CIA, that's all undercover officers uh, traveling around the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I spent seven years there, met my wife there, got married there, had my first baby. I'm so so curious about this like spy on spy romance. How did that go? (laughs) Did you have to get permission? Like, did you have to declare your relationship? Did they already know? Sorry, I just asked you four questions in a row. (laughs) Yeah. So we do have to declare the relationship. Uh, They did know. Uh, My wife and I were then assigned on operations together because Uh. we become our own support element to one another. So that's a good thing okay. for CIA. So now CIA doesn't have to come up with a cover reason why these two strangers should know each other. Uh, instead, we are legitimately married. And there's a documentation trail showing that we're married. And we have you know, two different cover providers and cover backgrounds. And we look just like any other married couple. So it's very convenient. Kind of- very convenient to them. Do you think that they matched you? Like, do you think that they intentionally put you in the same room with the hopes that you would like 
have a spark. Yeah, I would love to give them credit for that, except that CIA is still a government organization. And, you know, USPS still loses your mail and the DMV, for you know, fails to send you your updated license every now and then. So, yeah, it's I don't well, anticipate that they put that much time and effort into doing that for us. Maybe not, but also they're people like these are organizations run by people. And if you had some thoughtful bosses who were just kind of sitting around going, well, Andrew's single and I don't know your wife's name. But let's call her Jane. Jane's single. I wonder if and just like put you in a room together. I would try that. Yeah, I mean, I'm nosy and a little <laughs> manipulative sometimes. I'm OK. <laughs> if so, then whoever that person was, my wife's name is Jihi, J-I-H-I. Then Jihi and I appreciate that one nosy boss who, instead of focusing on national security, was focusing on our own personal relational satisfaction. <laughs> And it's, it's national security and romance. It's like, who's exactly. to say it's one or the other? That's true, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, but that's so we do joke that CIA is a giant dating service um, because mm-hmm. imagine what you go through for Match.com, right? Or even to build a Tinder profile. I mean, you got to put some hours of work into that, right? Yeah, it's torture. <laughs> but now, like <laughs> CIA does all the hard work for you. They have a they have a multi day interview process. And then it brings a bunch of almost guaranteed single people into one space, gives them all weapons, puts them undercover, uh, and then guarantees <laughs> them, you know, guarantees them places where they have to go to remote parts of the world and exotic locations together. It's like, how do you not have people spring up in couples? Andrew, your next your next step after this book is like out in the well, it's already out. Is it published yet? Yeah, I've got a few books that are out there, but yes, the the okay. if you're, my everyday espionage book is out there. My political playbook, yeah. yeah, I've got a few books out there. Well, your next your next step is to pitch this like everyday spy dating show <laughs> where you do exactly this and pitch it to Netflix. It'll be the next big hit. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting idea. I'm actually I actually just signed a non-disclosure to do a dating show with a major corporation recently. Um, but it's to support something they're already doing. And at least now I, I know the executive producers that I can go tap them on the shoulder and say, Hey, how do you feel about this other show? There we go. Well, I mean, that's kind of what you just said. It's like, here's the elements of what would make a really super interesting, totally watchable, definitely sexy, high stakes dating show. We'll give it a whirl. I could say, I mean, yeah, I would watch Operation it. Operation I don't like dating shows. Yeah. I'll do my best. Um, well, tell us about your books. You said, I, I saw the Everyday Spy, which I was like, oh, this is interesting. Um, but you said you have another one that I didn't know about. So yeah, I have. So I've written, I've written uh, two books now, and I'm working on a third. And I've actually got uh, um, a f- the third one is all about spies and sex. So it is kind of like in that same realm of what we're talking about with George O'Keefe and everything else. But then I've got a mainstream book. A, uh, my wife and I have been. It's a much slower process to publish when you're a former CIA officer because CIA has to okay. read everything. They have to approve everything. Right. They have to edit everything. So it's like a an extra cook in the kitchen. But my first book is called Everyday Espionage Winning the Workplace. And it's all about how to use spy skills, real spy skills, to get ahead in the workplace. Whether you're mm-hmm. an employee trying to climb up or whether you're a boss trying to manage the people beneath you. Or whether you're just an expert trying to connect with other experts to build out your portfolio of success. But all all of my books, no matter what their titles are, they all have to do with one very simple common element, right? Real tactical spy skills that result in immediate results. That's kind of the that's the 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 unique selling proposition, the the magic sauce to what everyday spy is. It's all real spy skills designed to give immediate results. That's what CIA teaches us. They don't teach us stuff that's going to help us two years from now. They don't work on our, you know, it's all like make-believe when you think that CIA works on improving your self-confidence and making you a more, you know, courageous person. They they find people who are those things. And then they give us the skills to do, you know, very simple things that turn into giant immediate impact. And that's what's been life-changing for me and life-changing for our business. If you like, when you use these skills, does it ever feel like 
you are um, exerting power or being unethical because you know something that other people don't know? Uh, it doesn't ever feel bad. Like it never feels unethical to me because, mm-hmm. uh, because one of the things that CIA looks for in people that it hires is something known as ethical flexibility or moral flexibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people have it. They just aren't, they're just not willing to admit it. Right. So mm-hmm. ethical flexibility means that ethics are not set in stone. And there's plenty of people out mm-hmm. there who would cringe at that idea, especially people who work in corporations where like, you know, they, they have to support ethics, but like you may never, you may never kick a dog. Maybe it's unethical mm-hmm. to kick a dog, but as soon as mm-hmm. that dog starts growling at your four-year-old child and then starts running at your four-year-old child with a full snarl, guess what you're going to do? You're going to get in the way of that yeah. dog. And then you're going to kick that dog, right? So that the difference between that person and me is that their flexibility is less flexible. It's more rigid. They're not going to kick the dog until the dog poses an immediate salient risk to their child. For Mm -hmm. me, if I was looking at a dog that was just looking at my kid crosswise, then I'd get in front of the dog. And as soon as it kind of like started barking at my kid or something, I would haul off and kick that dog. I've got zero problem because my flexibility is less rigid. So essentially, that's what they're looking for because it does take a certain uh, a certain element of manipulating the way people think and manipulating their decisions in order to get mm-hmm. them to give you secrets that keep your people safe and you know essentially harm the spies' government organization. And that's what spies do: we steal secrets from human beings who are trusted to keep secrets for their own foreign government. We don't do it inside the United States. We don't steal McDonald's secrets and give them to Burger King. We steal foreign secrets and give them to American government, make, uh, American government leaders and policymakers. Um, and for them, you know, yeah. I'll kick that dog any day of the week. What's the first thing that they teach you? The first thing that they teach us is something called perception and perspective. They basically teach mm-hmm. us why 99% of people are um, sheep. I mean, for all intents and purposes, you've all heard people talk about sheep and sheeple and, you know, lemmings following each other off the cliff, like all that derogatory stuff. The The science yeah. behind it is fascinating because it's real. So uh, our fight or flight instinct from the time that we were cavemen taught us to think about ourselves first. Everywhere you go, you're observing the world through your own five sensory organs. Look, feel, taste, smell, Uh, touch, whatever, I'm missing one somewhere, Uh, auditory, sound. So we walk through earth, we walk through life like we're the center of our own story. And, And because of that, we put ourselves unintentionally and subconsciously, we put ourselves as the most important person or the most important thing in our entire life, in the whole, the existence of the universe. And that's because if a, if a saber-toothed tiger jumps out from behind a rock, our caveman self is supposed to hide and protect ourselves. We want to see that threat early and from far away so we can protect ourselves. Well, now we live in a world where there are no more saber-toothed tigers. But we still right. want to see whatever's coming way in advance. Good news or mm-hmm. bad news, relationship or professional, whatever it might, whatever it might be. So we still you know, we still go through life being the center of everything in our own subconscious. That existence, that uh, the, the word for that type of uh, behavioral practice of seeing the world with yourself at the center, that's called your perception. It's what you perceive of the world. What, okay. what CIA teaches us is that everybody lives, everybody, you and me, every one of us is automatically, inherently walking through the world, looking at the world through our own perception. But CIA teaches us how to step out of our perception and sit in a position of perspective. Perspective is when you can put aside your perceptions and instead think about life through someone else's worldview, someone else's five senses. What does the world look like to them right now? What did they do this morning? What are they doing tonight? What frustrations might they have? Whatever else it might be. And that's the first thing they teach us because that's the biggest advantage that you can get um, from spy skills. Well, and I I imagine that that's like how you create the empathy that allows you to hear people's secrets. Like that is the thing that 
when you can go up to like somebody in China and you're like, oh yeah, I totally hear that, you know, you don't feel like you have agency or whatever it is that they're experiencing that day, or they want to get their child to go to this one school and they can't get their kid to go to this one school because of whatever X, Y, and Z. If you know that and you know that their struggle is that, then you can sit there and empathize with them and be like, picking up on how they experience Mm -hmm. things, how they will then relate to you as either an ally or an enemy. Correct. And it goes a step or two beyond that too, because now you can start to anticipate with higher probability what their decisions are going to be, what their response Mm -hmm. will be to certain inputs that you give them. So now if I'm talking to this Chinese person who wants their child to go to a private school in a different district that they can't get access to because of their family name, whatever it might be, now I know that if I go out of my way and I use my own resources as a covert officer or a covert operative, if I use my resources to basically you know, pay someone off to get a spot at that private school for this person's child, I can anticipate what they're going to say, how they're going to react, and how they're going to feel about me when I use my own network to place their child in this elite school. That's the, that's mm-hmm. the second step. The reason... We don't usually use the word empathy at the agency because the the word empathy usually implies that it's heartfelt or it's genuine. We use empathy as if it's an actual tool. So we can use empathy to create leverage that allows us to create a higher level of empathy to gain even more leverage. Help their child? Great. Mm -hmm. Now you help me. Yeah. Well, and but if... You have a certain like target. I don't know what you call your people, but let's say let's call them a target because that's what I think I picked up from. It's a TV. good term. That's the right term. Okay, <laughs> yay TV. Um. Yay for covert <laughs> life health coaches. <laughs> <laughs> let's say your target. You have a target who ha- wants this thing. That wants this school. But if you you have to know that they would want that help from you because if you got them that help and they didn't trust you, then that would automatically backfire. That's kind of what you're pointing to. And the, how, how can I help them in a way that actually helps them that gets them to be endeared to me or feel beholden or whatever the reaction is that you're looking for. Correct. Yes. It's about playing. It's, we call it the 51% game. Right. So a lot Mm -hmm. of us are trying to find someone who trusts us 100%. So we don't take action unless we think someone trusts us 100%. Really, you just need someone to trust you more than they don't trust you. And then Mm -hmm. once you have 51% of their trust, then you can leverage that into something, uh, something different. And if the thing that you're leveraging it into is a net positive for them, what ends up happening is you will more rapidly gain their trust because they will see that it's a net positive and you can anticipate with with higher probability that they will say yes. Uh, it's the same way. It's how all of us end up having sex with somebody, right? We don't trust them 100% when they put their hand on our thigh or hold our hand or you know put their hand on our shoulder or whatever, but we trust them a little bit more than 51%. And then- Sometimes. Maybe. Fair point. Fair point. I have, I have heard stories. But- the point is that you know once you have your hand on someone's thigh and you go from fifty one percent to suddenly they trust you seventy percent and then you know you put your hand up there the back of their shirt and you're petting their back now all of a sudden you're like eighty five percent and then boom why not just keep going I mean I'm already here right? right so that's it's not that different in real life when it comes to espionage for you why make this a business? Like what's important to you about bringing this to average people? It goes back to what you were saying earlier, right? Where, uh, what's the ethical feeling that I have about, you know, someone not having the tools and not being equipped. What I've learned from CIA is that bad guys have these skills. Bad guys learn these skills through a mix of on the job training with other bad guys and just experimentation, right? They'll They learn how to lie, they learn how to cheat, they learn how to steal, they learn how to swindle, and they learn how to do it all with a straight face, almost just as good as any trained CIA operative. It's the everyday Mm -hmm. person 
who ends up being the target for these criminals who can't do these things because they're raised right. in a society that tells them they have to be honest. They have to play fair. And be yeah, good. They have, to, they have to fight off those desires and quiet those dark thoughts. Do the right thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for us, when we left CIA, my wife and I left CIA in 2014, and it mm -hmm. was like taking one hat off and putting it on the shelf. And then we tried to prosecute life like we were normal people. Only nobody cared. Like we tried to do the right thing to get a job. Nobody hired us. We tried to do the right thing to, you know, negotiate our, our the apartment rent and nobody would, nobody would negotiate. And we were like, this sucks. Like being a normal person kind of, it's unfair. <laughs> so then we put the hat back on and we were like, well, shit. I'm, and you're like, wait a second. I'm just going to pretend I'm still a spy and pretend I'm undercover. Only now it's my real life. And now let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. And then we... We basically like lied our way into jobs in the corporate sector that we had no business being in because we knew how to talk our way and we knew how to network and we knew how to convince people of things that weren't true. So then, you know, within a week, we both had high paying jobs that were 100% remote that belonged to a company that we had no skills that qualified us for the job. And Except for being except a for being a really good liar, exactly. So so then we just <laughs> had to, and then we use the skills again in the job because CIA teaches us how to yeah. learn new things rapidly. So we just started learning mm -hmm. about our job as quickly as we could, prioritizing the things that made the biggest positive impact on our bosses. And then before we knew it, we were promoted and promoted again and promoted again. And you know, I started I started at eighty k, eighty thousand dollars a year with this remote work from home job that that I negotiated with the hiring manager to get back before work from home was a thing. And then when I left four years later, I was making $130,000 because I had been promoted every year, basically by just mm -hmm. negotiating and lying. And that was when it kind of dawned on me. I was like, if I can take everybody in the world, if I can take every $80,000 a year employee and turn them into a $130,000 a year employee, I'd have a business. I'd have a really healthy business. And that's how we yeah, started. I mean, that that's a 50%, it's over a 50% increase in your salary. Correct. It's 50, almost 60%, I think. I'm trying to do the math really quick in, in my head. I'm not that well, good at it's, math. And that's in four years, right? Which is like mm -hmm. one sixth of your entire career. So if I can teach someone how to mm -hmm. do that in four years, think where I can get them in eight years or 12 years. Uh, what does that do for their retirement? How does that transform the, their existence with young kids or with middle-aged kids or when they have to pay for college? So that was the that was the place where we realized we had something we could teach others. And CIA doesn't mind us teaching those skills because we're not teaching people secrets about spies. We're teaching people spy skills they can use in everyday life. So it's a perfect combination of staying on CIA's good side, but also providing something of value to the business world. So did you bring your business plan to the CIA and say, this is what I want to do? What are you cool with? <laughs> sort of. So uh, when you talk <laughs> when you talk to CIA, it's a one-way conversation. So they don't they don't uh -huh. have dialogue. You send them an idea and they either say nothing or they say no. So it's, so oh, everything we've okay. done so far when it comes to ideas, you say you send it to them and they either say nothing or they say no. And they just never said no. Uh, it's a little bit different when you're writing a book because now they have to come back and tell you what you can and can't say from your book. But when it comes to ideas, so we were like, hey, we're going to start a business. They never said anything. We're going to start a podcast. They never said anything. We're going to start a blog and a YouTube channel, and we're going to make a Reddit community. We're all over the place, and they just never say no. Uh, and then what ends up happening, you know, once every now and then, we've had former CIA officials who retire from CIA who then comment on our Twitter feed or comment on our podcast and tell us that they love the work we're doing. So that's kind of how we know mm -hmm. it's a net positive for CIA. Everything we teach people just equips future operatives to be that much more talented when they go into CIA. But it's also, we're one of the few people that leave and then still say good things about CIA. There's a lot of people who get out and only say bad things. Well, I can imagine why. Like, I bet some of that ethical flexibility can wear on you after a while if you get, if you're forced to be too flexible too much, it's kind of like bamboo, yep. you know, it starts, to, starts to splinter and you lose your sense of self. 
Did you have any of that experience? So that started happening for us. You're exactly right. That's that's a great example too, talking about how it ha- how it happens in bamboo. <clears throat> so when we were uh, looking at whether to leave or to stay after we had our first child, we were one of those parents who you know we were both very successful in our career, and we were rushing every morning to drop our kid off at daycare, and then rushing home every night to you know to pick our kid up at the last possible minute from daycare so we didn't have to pay the overage fees. Uh, and then every morning was a fight to get our kid from bed into the car in time. And then every evening was a fight to get him into the bath and fed on time. And we started to realize that we were prioritizing our career over our family, which both of us had only ever wanted a family. The career was nice, but we had always wanted to be, you know, parents. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of when it dawned on us that like, we've lost a bit of ourselves. We've lost focus on what really matters to us because we've made the mission matter to us more than anything else. And that was, um, that was the, the dawning. That was the, the aha moment that helped us land just a few weeks later on the fact that we had to leave. We had to get out because it wasn't going to get better. And as we were already talking about, you know, when do we want to have more children? Uh, it, there was no solution. And there was no horizon that was going to let us prioritize our family like we wanted to. So we were fortunate enough to catch that flexibility early and realize that we were compromising on our family in order to ruin the lives of foreign spies when we could mm. focus on our family and leave other people to take on the spy task and you know people who were happy to make that sacrifice that we weren't so happy to make. Do you think that there's like a shelf life to being a spy? There's absolutely a shelf life to being a spy. It's not a thinking thing. It's a number. And that number is about 12 years. So after 12 years of being a an undercover foreign officer, then you, uh, an undercover officer who travels in foreign lands, after that, you become what's known as a uh, a declared officer in foreign lands, which means everywhere you go, they, you just tell the local service that you are a CIA officer. So you're still undercover from uh-huh. most people. But like when you're in France, you tell the French police, hey, I'm CIA, but I'm not here to bother you. I'm here to hunt for Russians or Chinese or Germans, right? So I'm not going to bother France, just so you know. So don't bother me. But that's what I'm doing here. Whereas somebody who's less than 12 years in their experience, they might go to France and actually not be declared to the French. They might remain undercover even from the local service, which has been a, a challenge because we've had lots of intel mistakes where people get caught in the country they're living in. But we've also had um, lots of successes that don't ever get caught. So that's what makes it worth it. So your shelf life for your average mm-hmm. spy is about 12 years, uh, which is not that different from the military. If you're a pilot, you really only fly for about 12 years. And then you spend the rest of your career training or scheduling or you know doing administrative paperwork for other pilots. It's a very common kind of government standard that you got about 12 to 15 years in your career before you become an administrator. What do you think that, what, why that, that specific amount of time? Because it's the government and in the government, you don't, you can't hire a middle manager into the government. It's not like McDonald's. If you look at McDonald's public relations team, if they need a new middle mm-hmm. manager, they can just go to the open market and they can find someone. They can find someone who used to work for Walgreens or someone who used to work for Taco Bell and they can bring them in as a middle level manager. In the government, you can't do that. You can't hire somebody into a government organization and just assume that their commercial experience is going to apply in, mil- in the government. So they have to home grow every middle manager. Uh, and the only way they do that is basically by creating a, a structured hierarchy where after you've served 10, 12, 14 years, you have to become a manager. It's kind of anybody who's ever been in government knows it's like, or, or in the military, it's like this, this death toll that nobody wants to hear where they tell them, okay, you're coming off the line, you're coming out of the field, and now you're going to be a manager for the next eight, 12 or 15 years. Well, it just sounds like not necessarily the most effective way to use all of your talent or retain all of your talent. Like it seems like for you, that would be a disaster to be forced to go into administrative work. Yeah, which is why I didn't stay. You just don't seem... Right. And and you're exactly yeah. right. So uh, retention is a major issue. CIA has been struggling with retention. Uh, 
the last three years in ways that it has never struggled with retention before. Uh, and a big part of that is because of what you saw happen in Afghanistan and what you saw happen overseas, right? We leave these foreign conflict zones, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen. And as we leave, the officers who were dedicated to those targets, the officers who were specialists in those areas, what are they going to do? They're not going to just sit around and wait until they become pencil pushers. So they often leave right. and then they go and join the private sector. That's attrition. That's turnover that CIA isn't used to seeing. And the same thing is true in the military. The joke of the military is that people who have talent leave the military because they know that their talent is going to be worth more money on the outside. And then the people who end up with staying in the military, the majority of them are actually the people who are the least qualified and the least talented. And that's that's what makes it easy for the military to have only a few very skilled senior officers because there's only mm -hmm. a few very skilled people that stay. Well, that's also true in the private sector too. Like the as a former lawyer, I have a lot of friends who are, well, I'm still a lawyer. I have my degrees and whatever, but I have a lot of friends who are still in private practice and they're experiencing that same kind of attrition. Mm -hmm. I think there's also a generational component For to sure. this too, which is our generation watched our parents' generation stay and deal with, for lack of a better term, administrative yep. bullshit and suck mm -hmm. it up. And we are more or less like, Nah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go find a different yeah, way. It's true. And I think the the even younger generation, like Gen Z, is like, what? You want me to what? <laughs> so I just think our relationship with work is changing as well. Like how we relate to the places where we commit our time. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And I would I would also add to that that what's interesting is that um everybody and a generation kind of shares that generational attitude, but not everybody shares the same capacity or the same capabilities. So while yeah. 10 people in Gen I might say F you to their boss and quit their job, only two out of the 10 really actually have the capacity to make something amazing happen for themselves. The other eight mm -hmm. have the capacity to say F you to their boss but they don't actually have the the work ethic or the vision or the self discipline to make something amazing for themselves. So and so yeah, they'll just go. They'll somewhere just go else. somewhere else. Exactly right, right. So it's really interesting to me because I I love the fact that I am in a position now where I get to work with those two out of ten who have the capacity to, to do amazing things. And because when I was in the government, I had to deal with the other eight every day, and that was not a fulfilling or rewarding position sometimes. I think a lot of my work is not training the other eight, but it's working with the two to work with the other yeah. eight. How do you, it really is like, I work with a lot of executives and leaders and it's like, how do you be a person who has high standards for yourself, has high standards for your output and work with people who don't aren't. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that's always been very helpful to me is I'm a, I'm a numbers person. I understand probabilities. Mm -hmm. I value them. I understand percentages and ratios. So, uh, I work with a lot of ultra high net worth or ultra rich clients. Um, sometimes they're executives more often than not, what they are is founders of businesses or investors themselves who invest in multiple businesses. Uh, and I had one client that I was working with who who gave this example, which was just it just was crystal clear to me. He said that when you're when you're a founder or a CEO, you are one hundred percent capable of doing any job in the business. And that's fine, except that you can't give every job one hundred percent of your time and attention. So you have to hire somebody. When you hire somebody, you have to you have to understand that there's nobody you can hire who's going to give them is going to give you 100% like you can give 100%. A very qualified above average employee is only going to do about 70%. But that 70% frees up 100% of your ability to do something else. So then you end up staffing yourself with 70% performers. And then sometimes they do 80 or 90% and that's great. Other times they're going to be a 70% performer who only performs at about 30%. But that's also fine because that's 30% less work that you have to do. 
So three people performing at 30% are what it takes to replace you. So as long as they, as long yeah. as you're willing to accept that the people you're hiring are never going to be as good as you or as hardworking or as dedicated as you, then you have the potential to scale your business because it's, you can't scale it when it's just yourself. You have to hire. So whether you hire two or four, you're still scaling. And I thought that was really helpful to me to understand because in, in my weird mathematical brain, I was like, oh yeah, that does, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. It, well, it makes it makes sense for me. I hear it as like a control thing. Cause I am not mathematical. I am, um, fluid and more feminine. Yes. Yeah, your vagina's yeah. on walls. Like I see it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did notice this is my, but I, well, actually I'll just say, I'll just say this. So I noticed that in your like materials there, it's very masculine. Would you say that the CIA is masculine? Oh, you know. In numbers? So what you see in my materials is my targeting. Because I am definitely targeting Mm -hmm. men more. I I target men and I target women who have masculine colors and masculine settings that resonate with them. And and Mm -hmm. a big part of that is because it takes a lot of effort for me to present this stuff in a soft way. It takes no effort for me to present this stuff in like a hard, concise way. So I'm looking for hard people in my, in my materials that they're targeted and geared towards hard, decisive people, um, with a, with a goal one day to soften up as I expand, but not yet. (laughs) We'll we'll talk about that. I'll teach you how to do that. (laughs) Well, but back to this idea of like the numbers, what I hear is this control piece, like how much can you control and how much control are you willing to let go of? And if you are willing to release control over just a portion of some of what you have to do, then you can have more control over more things that you could do. There's just more possibility. That's more creative. There's more opportunity. Yeah, you might, there's more risk for error. But in my like experience of that, it, that feels generative to me rather than having to like nail down who's going to do what all the time. But I hear the numbers aspect of yeah, it too. It's, it's like, funny. It's not just more risk for error. It's a guarantee of more error. But mm-hmm. when you match the error to the opportunity, the opportunity outweighs it, right? When you're doing hundred percent of the work, right. you're error free, but you only have one opportunity that you can, that you can pursue at any given time when you have. Or even if it's not error free, it's like, all right, I'll fix the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but once you have two or three people or 10 or 12 people, now all of a sudden you have seven opportunities to every one error. And then you have, you mm-hmm. know, 20 opportunities for every two errors, but the opportunities just exponentially outpace the errors. And that's what makes it so valuable. Um, does your wife run your business with you? Is yeah, this it's a, a, husband, a partnership? Mm-hmm, it's a husband and wife job, a husband and wife shop, if you will. Uh, I do most of the FaceTime because that's what I did in the field. I was the one kind of on the mm-hmm. spot making stuff up on the fly. And my wife runs all the operational back end, all the planning and strategy and tactics. I feel like that's very much a thing that women would do, right? Is be like, all right, here's all the chess pieces. You go here, you do this. She's definitely, she's gifted Um, at that, more gifted than I am. Um, And I know when we put her on the spot, she does excellent. I think she does excellent on film because she's such a genuine person. Uh, But of course, it's very mm -hmm. draining for her. And, you know, when you have to do multiple interviews or if you go on site for, you know, a prolonged event, multiple days of direct client contact can be quite draining for someone who's, not recharged through that uh, one-on-one experience. In your partnership with your wife, like at home and at work, what's the balance like? Um, it's not good because it's more like a it's more like a washing machine. It, when, you, when you wash your clothes, okay. <laughs> it's like the mess stays inside the washer, but everything is just kind of tumbling mm-hmm. around all the time. And what mm-hmm. comes out at the end is clean laundry, but it's not always great to be inside the laundry machine as it's tumbling. So uh, we do a lot of handing off, 
we do a lot of, you know, uh, turnover, high five turnovers. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before where it's like, Oh, I just finished my thing. High five, you go finish your thing. And then you're kind of like, well, what was your thing that you just finished? And what's my thing that I have to do? Cause we're also raising kids. We homeschool our children at the same time. And then, mm-hmm. uh, we, our business allows us to travel, uh, for clients and for personal reasons. So we very rarely ever stay in one place for more than a few months at a time. Uh, so it's this awesome adventure that we get to dictate ourselves, but part of the sacrifice to make that happen is while we're young and while while our children are young, we're also embracing some of the entropy that comes with running a business. How do you manage? I would relate to that as very stressful because I am the kind of person who likes a little stability. Like I like adventure, but I want a home base. I will always want a home base. So how do you manage the stress that comes with that or the fear or the like, whatever? Yeah. So a lot of that is what CIA taught us how to do actually. So fear, fear is a manifestation of the future. Fear never happens in the present. Fear is always something that happens Mm -hmm. when you think about the future. So when you lean into the present, you're essentially fearless because for example, if we talk about that snarling dog, a snarling dog is a frightening thing. Why? because you're afraid that they're going to bite you in the future. Once that snarling dog actually bites your leg, once it's got a mouthful of your calf in its face, you're not afraid of it anymore. Now you're in problem solving mode and you're like, how do I get this dog off my leg? Fear is gone. It's not part of the equation. Once you get the dog off your leg, fear sets in again, because now you're starting to be be afraid of, is it going to get infected or am I going to bleed to death or whatever else? So um, we're fortunate that fear doesn't play much of a role because we understand that it's a future oriented feeling. Um, but stress, specifically the stress that's induced in your body physically through a hormone called cortisol, that is a very real mm-hmm. thing that you have to deal with. But there's also very real physical things you can do to deal with the cortisol stress hormone. Um, things like meditation, proper diet, exercise, rest, um, downtime, recovery time. Uh, one of the things that we try and teach everyone we work with is the science behind feelings. Because so many of us are slaves to our feelings. And then so many people go to counselors and they go to therapists to try to, you know, make sense of their feelings. When in reality, every feeling that you have is triggered by a biological effect inside your body. So when you understand the biology behind whatever feeling you have, you essentially gain an unfair advantage over that feeling. So that's, that's a big part of how we operate in our business and how we manage our own stress and anxiety levels. And then it's also what we teach our clients so that they can handle higher stress and higher anxiety levels. And I, like, I also teach my clients the difference between, um, being beholden to your feelings and allowing them to happen without like succumbing Mm -hmm. to them. Because I think the if somebody were to hear you without any kind of additional context around what do you do with your feelings, they're going to think, Oh, I just don't feel them, which is also not really an effective way to deal with your feelings because then they just become magnified. Is that what the CIA teaches you or do they teach you something totally different? No. So they teach you, they teach you how to compartmentalize and prioritize Mm -hmm. your feelings because you have to process them. Just like you said, You just don't have to process them at the same time that you feel them, right? If you feel Mm -hmm. anger or if you feel fear, your untrained reaction is to show that anger or show that fear right away. But if you, with a little bit of training, you can learn to compartmentalize that anger or fear, keep it, but kind of move it to the non-frontal cortex part of your brain so that the person you're sitting across from at the negotiation table or at the doctor's office, or you know, if you're sitting across from a terrorist who's threatening you with a gun, you don't have to show them your fear in that moment. You can still feel the fear. There's an awesome story from an FBI negotiator friend of mine who was flown, she's a female, she was flown to the Philippines uh, back in like the 90s to do a hostage negotiation for American citizens. There were 10 American uh, citizens who were uh, kidnapped from a resort and held hostage. They were forced to travel by foot through the jungle, uh, tied up by a terrorist organization. Now, the organization, the FBI, started negotiating with the terrorist organization, and they were like, hey, give us our 10 give us our ten citizens back, 
And then we'll make sure that the local service in the Philippines, you know, gives you safe passage back to your whatever, you know, your private island where your little, where your band of misfit terrorists live. And she was overseeing this whole negotiation and the terrorists agreed. And they were like, okay, we will do this. We'll give you your 10 citizens back. And then on the day that they were turning them over, after the eighth citizen crossed the barrier, then they shot the other two point blank in the head, uh, just violating the negotiation right then and there. Um, And she saw that thing happen. But she then also did not process the emotion then and there. She kept the eight safe and then prosecuted an offensive against the terrorist group that had violated the, the negotiation contract, brought them down, right? had the local police force roll them up. And over the course of like the next 48 hours, everybody was taken away and put in jail and whatever else. And the eight were put back on a plane and sent home to safety. And then she got on a plane. And only when she was sitting in her own business class seat on her way back from Manila to get back to the United States, then she processed the disappointment and the sadness of seeing two Americans killed that way. And then she tells a story that she bawled the whole way home. Could you imagine if she would have processed that on the spot, if she would have been stunned or shocked or overwhelmed with sadness instead of decisive in her actions in the field? So that's how they teach us to to handle our emotions. Well, there's also, it's also kind of like, what's the mission at hand? Like, I'm always looking for what do we have to take care of right now? Because if you are being blown around by your feelings, you're never going to get anything done. Right, right. And there's some people who, you know, who feel like it's also okay. And I understand that there are some people who need to run away from the mission because they feel their feelings overwhelming them. So it's like, I'm here right now to do this thing. Oh, I just got this bad news. Now I need to go hide in a closet and cry. I understand that there are people like that and that's fine. Um, Those are not the people that I can promise success to, right? The clients that I work with, the people I target are people who don't want to go cry in the closet. Maybe they do right now, but they know they don't have to. So it's one of those things that I'm very particular about when I choose my clients or my or the people that I work with is I make sure that they know the feel, there's a place for feelings, but feelings are not in charge. Feelings are feelings mm-hmm. are a outcome from inputs that you can otherwise compartmentalize and control. Well, it's just a relationship to what's your relationship to or with mm-hmm. whatever you have in front of you and. I mean, we could probably talk about this for 10 million hours, <laughs> but I have a couple of other questions that I want to ask I'm you. I'm following your lead. Absolutely. Um, what is the vision that you have for your business and for you, the rest of your life? Do you oh, have yeah, one? Absolutely. So um, my plan is to work until 45. I'm 42 years old this year. I just okay. turned 42 a few days ago. Um, Happy thank birthday. you very much. But I want to be a multi-million dollar operation by the time I hit 45. And then I'll replace myself and I'll replace my wife with a different CEO and a different COO. And what's nice is I intentionally call our business Everyday Spy, not Andrew Bustamante, because I want the brand Mm -hmm. to represent anybody who has any experience in espionage and intelligence. So, you know, I'm, I left CIA in 2014. That might be interesting in 2022. But that's not going to be that interesting in 2024 or 34 or 44. I'm going to be outdated. So I want to make a brand that allows me to bring in other people who used to work for intelligence. I have a a former KGB officer who I work with. I have two other former CIA officers I work with. I'm bringing on a lady who used to work with Romanian intelligence. Uh, There's lots of ex-spies that are out there, and they all know what it's like to have spy skills that work in everyday life. So my vision for the business is to just have kind of a revolving door of experts who come and go and uh, they get to use Everyday Spy as a platform to start their new career. Because when you leave intelligence, it's very hard to start a new career. I was telling you about that earlier. They get a foothold to start their new career. And the people who are following Everyday Spy always get the newest, most cutting edge information about what's happening in the intelligence world and how it applies to everyday life. And then meanwhile, my wife and I just get to focus exclusively on raising, you know, adolescents and teenagers and preteens and and then we get to enjoy enjoy being the owners of a business without having to be the employees in that business. That sounds awesome. Um, have you thought about like 
how your life will look like at like what fulfillment will look like for you during that time after you have replaced yourself? Will you be involved in your business? Will you be so hands off? Are you just going to go like bounce around from tropical paradise to glacier hiking to like, what are you going to do? Yeah. So the, the goal, the goal is to basically be like 10 or 15% interested in the business. Like we're still there to help guide and cultivate the leadership that we've left behind us. So there's going to be a CEO and a COO and we'll be essentially like their board of directors just without it being a public company that helps guide their decisions and help them in moments where they're, you know, up against a wall, uh, to make a decision. But otherwise the rest of the time is really supposed to be dedicated to leaving our true legacy. Your true legacy is never going to be your business. Your true legacy is the memories and the impact that you leave in your family. For us, that's our children. Mm -hmm. And then our children are eventually going to get married and they're eventually going to have kids of their own. And then those kids are going to have kids. And that's where your true legacy really gets defined. So for me, whether I run a $50 million business or a $2 million business isn't that important. What I want to be able to do is run a business that supports its employees and then supports us raising a family without having to work very much or very hard. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure that like your time in your in the CIA and the time in it since then has been a very hard working Correct, time. Correct. Yeah. And so you're kind of like, uh, this is like I'm I'm over this I'm over right. this shit. But- this is the investment period, right? This is when you you take yeah. six hundred dollars out of your two thousand dollar a month paycheck, and you're like, why am I saving this money? But when you're fifty and that two that extra money has turned into you know a half million dollars, now you're that's you're living off the investment like, you made. I'm glad exactly. I saved this money. Yeah. Um, what does success mean to you? You kind of alluded to it just now. I think a legacy is a part of it, but like, what else is a big component of success? For so you? my definition of success for all people is not having to do what anybody else tells you to do. You don't have to do what anybody tells you to do. You don't have to do what anybody says you, you should do. Um, you just do whatever you feel like is the best thing for you, the right thing for you. And then my definition of success for me is essentially the exact same thing. I want to have enough money that I don't need to worry about money. And I don't have to mm. worry about whether I invest it or save it or what my what my return on investment is with my financial manager or whatever else. And I want to be able to travel to whatever country I choose to travel to whenever I choose to travel there. Uh, and our strategy for doing that is to get multiple citizenships. So- I want to have enough money that I can go buy my citizenship in basically any country. Because outside of the United States, basically everything's for sale. So you can just go buy property. Six months after you buy property in Spain, you're a citizen. Six months after you buy property in the Bahamas, you're a citizen. And now you can go to all those places that don't accept a U.S. passport. So uh, mm-hmm. that's that's the plan for us is just any any barrier that exists to what we want to do then my goal is to break that barrier and go do what I want to do because I only have one, you only get one trip around the rock. So what's the point of, what's the point in waiting or compromising or, or working for somebody else all your life so that you can ask for your two weeks off a year and only have them still call you on your two weeks off. That's, that's not my world. Yeah. I really appreciate the sense of freedom that you actually just outlined for everybody. Like I can see it and feel it and taste it. It is, um, a tangible vision. That's the goal. And, and my hope is I started my business in a very public way. Um, when you listen to my podcast, I have an iTunes top 100 podcast, uh, that sometimes Mm -hmm. makes it out of its category into the top 100 of, of the the iTunes popular charts. But, uh, I started it very publicly when I had no business. I started my first podcast episode when I had no business and I've built the business Mm -hmm. as I've posted the podcast episodes in real time. So uh, I'm hoping that that very public demonstration when I achieve my end goal will kind of stand as a legacy on its own to show people that I wasn't like, if you've ever read the four hour work week, it's like the most disappointing book in the world. Because some rich dude writes a book about how he got rich and then found he could stay rich by having a four-hour work week. That doesn't help those of us who aren't rich. So my hope was that my podcast would kind of be the real-time example of here's how I went from employee to freedom 
you know, in however many years it took me to get there. Yeah. Well, what's the name of your podcast? It's pretty sure it's Everyday Spy, but let's just make sure that everybody knows exactly where to find you, how to find you, follow you. What's like, what's your Netflix show going to (laughs) be? All of those things, because this was amazing and you deserve all of the following in the world. Oh, thank you so much, Erin. Yeah. My podcast is called the Everyday Espionage Podcast. Uh, It's hosted by me, Andrew Bustamante. If you look up Everyday Spy on any platform, on any search engine, you'll find me, you'll find all my social media, and you'll find my podcast because it's just, we have a niche that nobody else can touch right now, which is really helpful. Uh, And then if we get a show on Netflix, I'm hoping that they'll let me call that show Hero Maker because that's what we're in the business of doing is turning everyday people into heroes, heroes that define their own heroics on their own terms. Oh, that's awesome. And your books, again? Are all the Everyday Espionage series. So you'll find Everyday Espionage Winning the Workplace. You'll find the Political Playbook. Uh, I'll keep your eyes open on my website, and you'll see Sex and Spies come out soon. And then we're working on a mainstream book with a uh, New York publisher that I cannot talk about yet by name, but we've got a working title, and CIA has to approve it. And hopefully we'll see that in the next few uh, months. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this show. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. I learned so much. I'm sure everyone else did too. That was my pleasure. Anything else you want to leave no, us with? No, I, I, I really appreciate conversations like this where we get to be very straightforward. And I always appreciate talking to somebody who's, who's more uh, in touch with their feelings and creativity than me because it gives me a fresh perspective. And that's so powerful. So thank you, Aaron. Thank you. This is Not Advice is brought to you by me, Erin Conlin. If you are interested in learning more about my coaching practice or how we might be able to work together, please visit erinconlin.com. This podcast would not have happened without production support from Cedar Cathedral Narrative Studio.